When I go into a bank, I get rattled. The clerks rattle me. The wickets rattle me. The sight of money rattles me. Everything rattles me. The moment I cross the threshold of a bank and I attempt to transact business there, I become an irresponsible idiot. I knew this beforehand, but my salary had been raised to $50 a month, and I felt that the bank was the only place for it. So I shambled in and looked timidly round at the clerks. I had an idea that a person about to open an account must need consult the manager. I went up to a wicket-marked accountant. The accountant was a tall, cool devil. The very sight of him rattled me. My voice was sepulchral. Can I see the manager, I said, and added solemnly, alone. I don't know why, I said alone. Certainly, said the accountant, and fetched him. The manager was a grave, calm man. I held my fifty-six dollars clutched in a crumpled ball in my pocket. Are you the manager, I said. God knows I didn't doubt it. Yes, he said. Can I see you, I asked. Alone? I didn't want to say alone again, but without it, the thing seemed self-evident. The manager looked at me in some alarm. He felt that I had an awful secret to reveal. Come in here, he said, and led the way to a private room. He turned the key in the lock. We are safe from interruption in here, he said. Sit down. We both sat down and looked at each other. I found no voice to speak. You are one of Pinkerton's men, I presume, he said. He had gathered from my mysterious manner that I was a detective. I knew what he was thinking, and it made me worse. No, not from the Pinkertons, I said, seeming to imply that I came from a rival agency. To tell the truth, I went on, as if I had been prompted to lie about it. I'm not a detective at all. I have come to open account. I intend to keep all my money in this bank. The manager looked relieved, but still serious. He concluded now that I was a son of Baron Rothschild or a young ghoul. A large account, I suppose, he said. Fairly large, I whispered. I propose to deposit $56 now and $50 a month regularly. The manager got up and opened the door. He called to the accountant. Mr. Montgomery, he said unkindly loud. This gentleman is opening an account. We'll deposit $56. Good morning. I rose. A big iron door stood open at the side of the room. Good morning, I said and stepped into the safe. Come out, said the manager coldly and showed me the other way. I went up to the accountant's wicket and poked the ball of money at him with a quick convulsive movement, as if I were doing a conjuring trick. My face was ghastly pale. Here, I said, to posit it. The tone of the words seemed to mean, let us do this painful thing while the fit is on us. He took the money and gave it to another clerk. He made me write the sum on a slip and signed my name in a book. I no longer knew what I was doing. The bank swam before my eyes. Is it deposited? I asked in a hollow, vibrating voice. It is, said the accountant. Then I want to draw a check. My idea was to draw out six dollars of it for present use. Someone gave me a checkbook through a wicket. Someone else began telling me how to write it out. The people in the bank had the impression that I was an invalid millionaire. I wrote something on the check and thrust it in at the clerk. He looked at it. What? Are you drawing it all out again? He asked in surprise. Then I realized I had written 56 instead of 6. I was too far gone now for reason. I had a feeling that it was impossible to explain the thing. All the clerks had, had stopped writing to look at me. Reckless with misery, I made a plunge. Yes, the whole thing. You withdraw your money from the bank. Every cent of it? Are you not going to deposit any more, said the clerk astonished. Never. An idiot hope struck me that they might think something had, had insulted me while I was writing the check, and that I had changed my mind. I made a wretched attempt to look like a man with a fearfully quick temper. The clerk prepared to pay the money. How will you have it, he said. What? How will you have it? Oh, I caught his meaning and answered without even trying to think. In fifties. He gave me a fifty dollar bill. And the six, he asked dryly. In sixes, I said. He gave it me and I rushed out.
As the door swung behind me, I, I caught the echo of a roar of laughter that went up to the ceiling of the bank. Since then, I bank no more. I keep my money in cash in my trouser pocket and my savings in silver dollars in a sock. Borrowing a Match by Stephen Leacock You might think that borrowing a match upon the street is a simple thing, but any man who has ever tried it will assure you that it is not and will be prepared to swear to the truth of my experience of the other evening. I was standing on the corner of the street with a cigar that I wanted to light. I had no match. I waited till a decent, ordinary-looking man came along. Then I said, Excuse me, sir, but could you oblige me with the loan of a match? A match, he said. Why, certainly. Then he unbuttoned his overcoat and put his hand in the pocket of his waistcoat. I know I have one, he went on, and I'd almost swear it's in the bottom pocket. Or hold on, though. I guess it may be in the top. Just wait till I put the parcels down on the sidewalk. Oh, don't trouble, I said. It's really of no consequence. Oh, it's no trouble. I'll have it in a minute. I know there must be one in here somewhere. He was digging his fingers into his pocket as he spoke. But you see, this isn't the waistcoat I generally... I saw that the man was getting excited about it. Well, never mind, I protested. If that isn't the waistcoat you generally... Why, it doesn't matter. Now hold on, the man said. I've got one of the cursed things in here somewhere. I guess it must be in with my watch. No, it's not there either. Wait till I try my coat. If that confounded tailor only knew enough to make a pocket so that a man could get at it. He was getting pretty well worked up now. He had thrown down his walking stick and was plunging at his pockets with his teeth set. It's that cursed young boy of mine, he hissed. This comes of his fouling my pockets. By God, perhaps I won't harm him up when I get home. Say, I'll bet that it's in my hip pocket. You just hold up the tail of my overcoat a second till I... No, no, I protested again. Please don't. Take all this trouble. It really doesn't matter. I'm sure you needn't take off your overcoat. And oh, pray don't throw away your letters and things in the snow like that. And tear out your pockets by the roots. Please, please, don't trample over your overcoat and put your feet through the parcels. I do hate to hear you swearing at your little boy with that peculiar whine in your voice. Don't. Please don't tear your clothes so savagely. Suddenly the man gave a grunt of exultation and threw his hands up from the inside lining of his coat. I've got it, he cried. Here you are. Then he brought it out under the light. It was a toothpick. Yielding to the impulse of the moment, I pushed him under the wheels of a trolley car and ran. The New Food by Stephen Leacock I see from the current columns of the Daily Press that Professor Plum of the University of Chicago has just invented a highly concentrated form of food. All the essential nutritive elements are put together in the form of pellets, each of which contains from one to a hundred times as much nourishment as an ounce of ordinary article of diet. These pellets, diluted with water, will form all that is necessary to support life. The professor looks forward, confidently, to revolutionizing the present food system. Now this kind of thing may be all very well in its way, but it is going to have its drawbacks as well. In the bright future anticipated by Professor Plum, we can easily imagine such incidents as the following. A smiling family were gathered round the hospitable board, table was plenteously laid with a soup plate in front of each beaming child, a bucket of hot water before the radiant mother, and at the head of the board the Christmas dinner of the happy home, warmly covered by a thimble and resting on a poker chip. The expectant whispers of the little ones were hushed as the father, rising from his chair, lifted the thimble and disclosed a small pile of concentrated nourishment on the chip before him. Christmas turkey, cranberry sauce, plum pudding, mince pie, it was all there all jammed into that little pill, only waiting to expand. Then the father, with deep reverence and a devout eye alternating between the pill and heaven, 
lifted his voice in benediction. At this moment, there was an agonized cry from the mother. Oh, Henry, quick. Baby has snatched the pill. It was too true. Dear little Gustavus Adolphus, the golden-haired baby boy, had grabbed the whole Christmas dinner off the poker chip and bolted it. 350 pounds of concentrated nourishment passed down the esophagus of the unthinking child. Clap him on the back, cried the distracted mother. Give him water. The idea was fatal. The water striking the pill caused it to expand. There was a dull rumbling sound. Then with an awful bang, Gustavus Adolphus exploded into fragments. And when they gathered the little corpse together, the baby's lips were parted in a lingering smile and could only be worn by a child who had eaten 13 Christmas dinners.